0: Hey Rockheads, if you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming, it's also great for kids doing homework, it's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves, I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com, that's mtcb.pwop.com. (laughs) .com.
1: <laughs> dot net rocks episode 1200 with guest rob connery recorded friday september 11th
2: 2015
0: Well, what do you know about that? It's .NET Rocks. It's episode 1200. Episode 1200. I bet Rob Connery didn't even know that. Well, we (laughs) didn't tell him. Congratulations. Thanks, gentlemen. You're special, Rob. Now (laughs) shut up and let us do the intro.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't make me take over your podcast. You know I
2: do that. We control the editors.
0: Uh, We will make you say whatever we want you to. Actually, I'm really glad that uh, Rob spoke up because uh, my Better Know Framework today has something that I'm sure he wants to comment on. So for Better Know Framework, roll that music. Awesome. All righty, dude. What do you got? Tinyurl.com. And I want you both to go there now. Tinyurl.com slash dumb switch. Dumb switch? Dumb switch. You've heard of smart switches. This is a dumb switch. Oh,
2: right. I remember this. My networking friend sent this to me. and We were laughing our
0: butts off about it. So Cisco in 2013 uh, has this uh, 3650 and 3680 switches. That were vulnerable to a system reset because of a major design oversight. Turns out the reboot button is right above the first port. And if you're using, uh, one of those network cables that has a little protective boot on it, you know, little, uh, you mean the,
2: the kind that they ship with the switch?
0: Yeah. You know, like every network cable in the world, it's going to push the button when you plug it in. But so. <laughs> let's just think about that for a minute just
2: think about that
0: oh my god you know it's not like cisco to make such dumb mistakes but you know they happen from time to time so i immediately sent this to all my friends who care about design you know and uh sometimes it's the little things that get (laughs) you well step one like why why are you putting the reset button on the front yeah right how often do we need to hit this really And many, many people have created reset buttons that require paper clips or something like that. So they're not accidentally pressed. So not only is this just a giant button sticking out, but it's right in the place where the first thing you're going to do when you plug in that first port is reboot it. Doop! Whoops. Oops. Nice one. So there you go. I just thought we'd have a little laugh at Cisco's expense because, you know, they can take it. <laughs> I think they can. You're right. <laughs> who's who's talking to us today, Richard?
2: Grabbed a comment off of show 957, the one we did with one Rob Connery when we talked about Biggie. Yep. Biggie. Back in the good old days. That was, uh, you know, over a year ago now because we a do a time. lot of shows. <laughs> So, suddenly, we're at 1,200 for a reason. And Mm. Brendan Parker had this great comment. He said, I'm so glad to hear that I am not the only developer that can't remember the exact details of the code I wrote last week. (laughs) Dude, yesterday. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) This morning. Now, I won't feel so bad when I'm asked how something I wrote works that I have to go consult the code to know. Code more than a month ago? Forget about it. Sufficient comments that state in plain English what is going on are always a big help, even when I'm the person who wrote the code. If nothing else, they help establish some intent. It's not so much what the code does, but what I
0: thought I'd make the code do. You know, it reminds me of Paul McCartney getting up in concert and playing Blackbird and forgetting the words. (laughs) (laughs) But you wrote it! You're Paul McCartney, man! It's your song!
2: (laughs) That's pretty funny. He had a good joke about it. I don't know. It's funny. Also, I have never given much thought to the advantage that a document storage approach brings to historical data integrity. This is a conversation I've had a few times just recently, but this idea of just taking – you take the object as it was the moment the person committed to the transaction and you save it, right? Intact. It's complete rather than decomposing it, right? Yeah. I can recall dealing with relational databases and needing help to be able to generate reports on the historical data that was problematic because the relationships in the database had changed since the time the transaction took place. This is my point. In those scenarios, we had to fall back on some analysis services work to maintain some fact and dimension tables that were able to accurately report on the older data. Obviously, a system where a snapshot of the transaction, the document, is persisted as a whole is a better solution when the relationships can change. Although, with that, I could see why you may want to have slightly more challenging task of assembling the data across documents. I could see how some sort of combination of both a relational database, where you'd store your normalized relational data, and a document database, where you'd store the transactions that could create duplicate, flattened out, or otherwise make an immutable static uh, snapshot of the data, could be pretty powerful. I tend to want to place all of my data access code against the same type of storage in one place. It's less overhead and less code to write, but the added overhead of doing both kinds of storage in tandem could arrive at a much more capable system. So thanks for the insight.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome.
2: And it's one of it's, it's, it's funny. It's a conversation I've had a bunch of time at an architectural level. The, in, in the past few months, so it's come up again and again, this idea of a true journal mm-hmm. of what actually happened on the system at the, to- at the time. I think folks have had enough experience now with exactly the problem Brendan was describing. And they're like, yeah, you're right. I, I want to store it as is, and then I'll decompose it later. Later being milliseconds later, yeah, but later. So, Brendan, we're with you. Thank you so much for your comment. A .NET ROCKS mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a a.NET ROCKS mug, write a comment on the website at at.NETROCKS.com or on any of the social media that we post to. We put every show up on Facebook and Google. And if you comment there, we can
0: send you a mug. And of course, you can tweet us. Richard is tweeting at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. We'd love to hear from you. And that brings us to Rob. Rob Connery helps developers of all sorts learn what's new with technology. He's been working in the technology field full-time since 1998 as a DBA and then a web developer. Rob's original focus was the Microsoft ASP.NET stack, building tools like Subsonic and the first micro ORM, Massive. In addition, Rob co-founded TechPub.com, which was acquired by Pluralsight with James Avery and co-hosted This Developer's Life with his friend, Scott Hanselman. He currently creates videos for Pluralsight and builds open-source things as he can. Welcome back, Rob. Rob hey thank you it's good to be here and congratulations for being selected for show 1200 because (laughs) it's a number it is a number and it's a good number too it's not a bad number yeah yeah it's 300 times four it is 400 (laughs) times three (laughs) exactly right (laughs) i love podcasting it's great all right anyway uh any comments on the dumb design or is that just like oh my god how could they just yeah, sit down? They, I love the gif in the in the on the
1: page right there. It is just <laughs> it's brilliant. Protective boot. Yeah. <laughs> just clicking the button like, oh wow. It's like a little fingernail. Yeah. yeah.
2: Over and over and over and Oops. over. Jeez. You know, and the thing is, do you know how long that would go on before you'd notice it? Mm. You know, I I oh, have yeah. mounted a new switch and just plugged in 48 cables. Click, 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 click. I would not see it. Server closets are not that well lit. You know, like you just wouldn't see it. You just wouldn't know what was going on. And in, and if the boot was sort of pressed against it so it wasn't quite triggered at all, it's just every so often the latch connected and the switch resets, the ARP tables dump, and off you go again. Like, it's not like a sign pops up that said, hey, I reset. You don't get an email. It's just. It's just your
0: network shitty. You almost think that some disgruntled employee did that as a last hurrah before they left the company. <laughs>
2: you know? You be. know what? I would like to meet that guy that would be that clever. I think it's too clever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How did it get by everybody? That's just what I don't understand. It's obvious. Yeah. Really crazy. Well, anyway, uh, we have you here, Rob, to talk about uh, Elixir. And mm-hmm. uh, first, but before we do that- we haven't really talked to you since you started traveling around the world with your family and stuff. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, but how did that go? It went
1: amazing. It was um, it was amazing. It's, I mean, really, it's all I can say. We had so much fun. It was hard. You know, it was difficult. It was mind-blowing. It was fun. It's about every adjective you could throw
0: at it. Yeah. Now, along the way, you're working, and I suppose mm-hmm. your wife is working, and your kids, you're trying to mm-hmm. uh, homeschool them, right? Yeah, we
1: tried. Uh, it
0: was <laughs> it was interesting. You know, you start out with this agenda.
1: You know, we went and bought um, curriculums and these iPad applications and all these things. And uh, yeah, we'd have math class every day from this hour, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because we needed mm-hmm. to stay regimented and that went out the window sure. wow. real fast. Okay. <laughs> well, because, you know, one of the things that we found is the kids were naturally curious uh, about a lot of things. Like my my youngest... Got insanely curious about Vikings, and wow. so yeah, and so I just I told my wife like I'd rather have her go and you know learn about Icelandic Vikings, right, rather than do do math right? Here she wants to go learn who Joder is, you know yeah, and, yeah, and the, yeah the lawgivers, and so she would read religiously every night, and so finally we just kind of embraced that and said they're going to learn way more. And so on did this you trip. go
0: see Viking museums and sure did Viking ships and stuff. Yeah, we you saw, saw the one in Norway.
1: Uh, no, we didn't make it to Norway, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, the ones in Iceland were amazing. Iceland, wow, yep,
0: fantastic. What a what a great opportunity for them, huh?
1: It was, it was, it was really neat. The, the they ended up knowing their Roman emperors, they could tell you the difference between Hadrian and <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm blanking on the names too, but you know, who Hadrian was and how Nero came down and all this stuff. It was amazing, they loved it. Wow, great,
0: yep. Okay. Well, uh, so the first time we talked about Elixir on the show was with Brian Hunter in, uh, at, uh, NDC London. And then we had Chris McCordon talking about how he's using Elixir with Phoenix. In both mm-hmm. of those situations, the thing that struck me the most, other than the obvious coolness of the actor model and all of that and, uh, and Erlang, the thing that struck me, I mean, forget about the, the modernization of Erlang, which is amazing as, As it is but the power the 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 true power to handle Mm -hmm. all those concurrent connections was Mm -hmm. mind boggling to me and and to the point where you know when i asked him about scalability he's like what do you mean (laughs) two million per machine isn't enough okay maybe one more machine it's like there isn't a scale out necessary just because the modern machines can One machine can handle two million connections at the same time. Yeah, it's gonna handle most big situations, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, There's a funny thing I saw on Twitter where this person was like, "Mike, you know, trying to get my machine to reboot, but my Erlang VM won't go down. It just—it's really hard to get this thing to stop." (laughs) (laughs) Wow. No. Because yeah, he was trying to put a security patch on the server, and Erlang's like, "Nope, won't do it." (laughs) Wow.
2: No.
0: Pretty funny. I'm working
2: here. Yeah. So anyway, where
0: did, where did you first get uh interested in in uh Elixir? And maybe oh. even going back to Erlang?
2: You know, it's
1: funny. Uh, Rob Sullivan, I have to blame him. Um, I mean I've heard of Elixir. Um, I read about it a little bit, and then the other day I was I was um I was just about literally to open up a Swift book because I wanted to start doing iOS stuff. And then I saw this tweet from Rob Sullivan and said, Oh boy, Phoenix has hit 1.0. And I said, What's that? And uh sure enough, there it is, Elixir's web framework. And next thing I know, <laughs> fast forward six hours later, and I am completely binging on this language. I just, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, and before we get into any of this, let me just say something very clearly. Uh, people out there are going to be saying, well, my language does X or my language does Y and you can't, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to sell anyone. I just like programming, right? Yeah. I love, I love experiencing new things and I might just turn around and walk away from this in a week. Um, Yeah. So this is just me musing. I'm not trying to
2: explain that this is going to be the greatest thing ever. Right. We're not proselytizing anything here. Well, and, And I watched your reaction on Twitter, like the I I was working on something else, but Twitter's always running in the background. And watch that, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. I'm like, holy cow! <laughs> yeah, just, the, that that story arc. I should take those tweets over a span of hours. Mm-hmm. You know, I I could. I was like, I was aware of where you were at and what you were doing. Oh my gosh! Well, the biggest thing for me was.
1: You know what I always call like the the zero to database uh, test. You know, I don't know why I picked database queries, but uh, I just wanted to see how hard is it going to be to get some data on you know in my console, my screen, and I literally had code running within five minutes. Wow! And you know, I was ready to just kind of sit here and pull my hair out, but no, it was it was fun.
2: Yeah, the we, they, we, you tell we're the old guys. What my automatic reaction with any new set of tools is: how long do a CRUD app? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Data over yep. data reforms is the job. It's what most of us do every day. Mm, so yeah, yeah. what do I got to do to get there? Yeah. And it's so funny because the Elixir people out there that are listening to
1: this are probably scratching their heads going, Oh my God, you guys are missing the entire point. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's just me trying to, you know, scratch the surface of this stuff. It's, oh, it's crazy. So,
0: so to recap from what we know, um, Elixir is a modernization of of Erlang or it runs on Erlang mm-hmm. and does all the things that Erlang does, except that it has more modern software, mm-hmm. uh, language features. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And so, and then Phoenix is the, the, the sort of the, you know, Ruby on rails or MVC, yes. uh, framework, web framework that uses mm-hmm. Elixir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, uh, so we've got all that right.
1: Yeah. Well, this is what I've, Explored and experienced. And here, and this is the funny thing. This is, this is the refreshing bit to me that keeps me hooked, which is it is rethought, you know, all the way through. In other words, my first reaction when I saw Phoenix is, man, why did you have to muddy up this language with another monolithic Rails clone? You know, Rails is fun, right? And, you know, I think we all have a Rails hangover now. Uh, (laughs) you know, but. (laughs) <laughs> no, I know there's Rails people out there that still love it and I don't mean to say that, but it's really hard to build a highly scalable application or I mean scaling in terms of maintainability, in terms of all kinds of things, not just speed uh, but anyway, no, these guys who did Phoenix, Chris and his gang it's service based You know, they built it with, with uh, CQRS and event sourcing all this stuff in mind, flexing the Erlang VM and all these abilities to do parallel processing elegantly that blew me away and then, you know, I, I see Ecto, which is their orm. I'm like, oh no, not an orm. Don't do this to me. This is one of the most intelligent orms I've ever seen. I I mean, I'm I'm looking at this like you didn't just give yourself over to objects. Cause to me, instantly, I was like, You're a functional language. What are you doing with an object-oriented thing? And right no, that's not what it is. It's got it's it's got, you know, uh running transactions within it is easy. I couldn't believe it. embedded schemas they're allowing you to just embed schemas in JSON B or with Mongo. Wow. You know, and that's what I mean. It's rethought and it's amazing. And here's the final thing I was going to say is I'm at the point where I'm learning now about macros and other things. And it's this metaprogramming model in Elixir where I'm just like I'm just sitting here gripping my chair, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's crazy that you can do this stuff. I just don't understand yeah. wh- how how it's how
2: are more people not jumping
1: into this? And I guess slowly they
2: are. Yeah. Of course, we've always talked about Erlang in the context of this totally service backend thing. What mm-hmm. WhatsApp did with it, you know, it was the end mm-hmm. of, in front of a bunch of mobile devices, the, the idea mm-hmm. of building web pages with this tool. Oh, it's, it's not, well,
1: it's funny. I, I don't know much about Erlang. Now, there's two things I know. One's a bit of trivia, which I'll tell you in a second. Um, But, yeah, half the world's telecoms backends run on Erlang. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, you see Erlang is in use everywhere. Yep. Um, Yeah, it's been around, I think, almost as long as Linux. (laughs) It's been (laughs) a long, yeah, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that I thought was funny is my brother was just up here, Mr. Computer Science Professor. And, uh, you know, I always hit him with these new languages and he just shakes his head. But he took to Elixir. He liked it a lot. Hmm. And, uh, and he started to laugh. And I said, what? And he goes, the engine, the beam engine. Um, I'm going to blank on the guy's name, Bogomil. Uh, who is, oh, I was, I can't remember his last name, but the person who wrote the beam spec and created the beam engine. My brother was his PhD uh, dissertation challenger. So they flew him over to Sweden, and he knows the guy really well. And he goes, I challenge this guy's PhD. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, wait, nice. what's the Beam engine? Uh,
1: the, beam, it's, uh, it's the, the Beam is the thing, it's the spec uh, of the Erlang VM. Okay. So when you write, when you write, uh, it's like a DLL runs. If, I hope I get this right. If I don't, please don't crucify me, elixirs out there. I'm still learning this stuff, but yeah, when you compile down uh, .NET code, it runs, you know, into a DLL, and then uh, the runtime executes it. Well, same thing with Erlang; you compile to a beam file, and the VM runs it. I got you. But there's a specification it has to run against, and
2: that's what Bogomil created. Okay, Bogomil Hausman.
1: Houseman, thank you.
2: Yeah, October 1997. I found his paper. I found yeah, his okay. specification. Great. We'll yeah. link to that. I will include it sh- in the show notes. It is not going to be a lightweight, fun filled read. Uh, no, this is no, straight not. up computer science stuff. I'm just, as a guy who reads a lot of papers, I'm like, uh oh. Well, you
0: know, summer's <laughs> over. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, tell me, I, I want to relive those moments that you. You tweeted about what were some of the things that were going through your mind and as as you were learning this stuff?
1: Oh wow. Well, a number of negative things. And and I and I hate to try and illustrate a positive with a negative, but whatever. Um, I have been doing nothing but node and JavaScript stuff for the last few years. And Mm -hmm. it's powerful stuff. I mean, it's simple. You're able to build things easily, but man, am I just I tried to write some C sharp and my brain just went, Oh God, you know, I have, I have become rusty in so many things. And so I thought, you know, I got to stop doing this JavaScript stuff. I have to do something at a, at a better level. And so that's why I was chasing down Swift. And then I'm like, Oh man, Swift is okay. It's another C based language, but I really miss Ruby. I do. I miss it a lot. And, uh, um, Ruby, and then, the yeah, friend, Ruby, <laughs> it is, it's a dear old friend, Yeah, you know, and and I just, you know, people would say, well, why don't you use that? It's like, oh God, you know, the gem system is, it's hard to go back to Ruby gems after you use NPM, you know, and anyway, I don't want to complain. So
0: NPM,
2: uh, node package manager, oh, uh, node package
0: manager. Yeah.
2: It's, it's brilliant. And I, and I love this context of you talk about a language, but you have to talk about the dev environment that you live in with it. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And you might love the language. You're not happy with the environment or you might love the environment, yeah. not happy with the language. Right. Exactly, and you and you and you wrestle with the, you know,
1: what's gonna what's it's gonna run under? J you know, and or MRI, or what are you gonna do? And anyway,
2: and you know, all uh, those pieces were moving while you weren't looking too. So it's not yeah, just exactly. you can go do what you used to do with Ruby anymore. You got to go figure out what's happened to it. Yeah. So anyway,
1: not to sound negative, but uh, I, when I looked at the syntax for Elixir, and I saw. I saw the Ruby influence and I saw it was Jose and I was like, Oh oh, yes. And you know, cause the guy is wonderful and he's an amazing teacher. And, and you know, you read his blog posts and you read about his influences and what he's trying to do. And he's trying to take Erlang, which is this wonderful functional language. that's kind of creaky, also very old, but he's just trying to like rev it essentially. And I just instantly was like, wow. So that was my first moment. Like, Oh, a chance to work with Ruby goodness again. Right. And the more I, the more I was like, what? No t-? And then the matching operator, that uh, was my first thing. Pattern matching, understanding that, broke my brain in half. I just, you know, because the equal sign, right? I don't know if you guys had talked about this in the past podcast, right? Rethinking what equals means in variable binding. Oh, yeah. Whoa. And I just, I remember that just leapfrogged from on my excitement. And then finally, it was like flexing pattern matching using recursion. Yep, And the guard clauses, I'm like, oh my God, that was so fun. That was just so much fun sitting here binging. And I called my buddy, Rob Sullivan. I'm like, look what you've done to me. And next thing I know, we we're both pair coding. And uh, <laughs> at the end of it, it was great. He said, that was the most fun I've had. Just pair coding that one thing with you. You know, that was some of, some of the most fun I've had in in months. But what were you, and you're working on the CRUD app? Like, oh yeah, just, uh, just together. It was the app. Uh, just building out a query, just trying to build something in Elixir. All
0: right. So one of the things that we know is very cool in Elixir is pattern matching, and mm-hmm. this is what they talk about. But um, the, you know, uh, I know a lot of people who still don't get it. So can can we go yeah. over that one more time and give me maybe a practical example of sure uh, of of how that is awesome.
1: Okay. Well, so there's a classic example when you read the book, it says, you know, okay, let's start out with, let's start out with a simple, what they say is looks like an assignment. So a equals one, right? And these, that equal sign is not an assignment operator. In other words, a is not assigned the value of one. Uh, you can flip it around one equals a and you get back true. Uh, but now if you said two equals a, you know, it, of course you get back an error that it says the right hand of the, of the match doesn't, doesn't work. And so it's kind of weird. You look at that and you say, what does that pattern match thing mean? Well, it means a lot in Elixir because what you end up doing is you'll pattern match against a function result. And and that's like, what? And it, it's just so bizarre because when functions come back, they return a couple of things. They usually return what's called a tuple or a tuple, right? Yeah. Right. And that's basically just a data structure. Uh, the first position in that tuple is typically an atom. It's like a Ruby, um, it's like a label, let's put it that way. It'll say, okay. And then coming up next is a dump of data. Mm-hmm. Well, you can pattern match against that and go off in your merry way. But if there's an error, right, you'll get back a label that says error. Well, now most developers will look at that and say, well, you should wrap that in a try catch. Or if, you know, this, is that, whatever. No, nope. In Elixir, you pattern match against the okay return, or the error return, and then you realize that you start rethinking everything. You're not sending a variable to the result of the function. You're pattern matching against the result of that function.
0: So, in other words, when Mm -hmm. the result of that function has a particular structure, has something, you know, like you would typically Mm -hmm. nested ifs, you know, is the worst possible example of that, right? If it, if this is that, and that is the other thing, and this is that, okay, well, this is Mm -hmm. the result, go call, pass that into this function or make this call, you know, sort of an, if then what you're saying is just that they just happen. They just happen. And
1: it's, I have an example in my blog of using pattern matching um, to solve, you know, it was a stupid example, but it, it was using pattern matching in a loop. It was a recursive loop and it was looking. This function was calling itself and kept looking at the result uh, as far as what to do next. And it would cycle some data and call itself again. And based on the result, it it would match the function to call. I it sounds so crazy to try and explain it's good. <laughs> when you see people trying to explain Elixir, they're always doing this heavy breathing thing, like, um, oh my God, <laughs> explain <laughs> this. But when you see it, there's a part of your brain that says, Oh, well, yeah, makes sense. Um, let's see if I can put it in human terms. I, I, I have an example in my mind I'm trying to work up where, you know, Carl shows up with his amazing, you know, scotch <laughs> at my house, right? Where are we going to go? What kind of scotch does Carl have? And if he doesn't show up, will the door open? I'm sorry. If the scotch doesn't show up with Carl, will the door even open, you know? So right, can, right. There's no ifs involved. You know, the door will lock itself if Carl shows up without scotch. <laughs> right. So it's a
0: sort of a, It's not just a pattern matching, but it's logic flow based on data structure.
1: Exactly right. Well put. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, that's a mind blower.
2: It is. It takes
1: a while to get your mind in in that space.
2: Well, now we just talk about what are all the cases that might happen, what patterns are we looking for? we talked about success and error. Mm -hmm. Is there a a success and a fail as well? Is there any Um, fail that isn't an error?
1: Yeah, oh man, that's a good question, and this is where it's going to stretch my level of utility knowledge. I I've written just a few things.
2: Yeah, you're new to things too.
1: Yeah, I can kind of see where things go, but this is so here. This is going to break your brain a little bit more. Okay, when you on. do a, when you do a function declaration, you can write different implementations based on the parameter list. So, um, you can. It's it's a weird nesting function thing that they do. And and so one of the things you can do is pass a function in uh, as a parameter to another function, and that will handle the return. How can I put this better? In other words, what you can handle you can handle the results coming back. So, okay, error, uh, failure, or whatever you you know whatever terms you put in that tuple structure, you can handle that with a function. In other words, you don't necessarily need to do an assignment. Right. And so that function will then. You then set up that function to accept parameters and do certain things. Uh if I wish see, this is where video is always fun. Cause you, know, you, can what? Just you know what flash maybe it's a better
0: example? How about just the routing in MVC?
1: Oh, for God's sakes. Yeah. Well you can look at the router in um yeah, the router in match, isn't it? Phoenix. Yes, exactly right. You can think of it exactly in the in the exact same term, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, four or four, do this. Right. Uh, yeah, it, that's a good way to put it. This is yeah. It's really hard to explain this stuff, especially when you know so little about it, like I do.
0: <laughs> it is crazy, and it, and I don't even I don't even know what the syntax would look like for something like that. Can you give us any kind of idea of how easy it is to do that? Um, it's like using delegates in C sharp. So. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, so there's you know you declare these things they're oh. inline actions or functions you just declare them inline. So you so, declare
0: a function, you say here are the here are the patterns that I want this function to be called on.
1: Yes, exactly. So um, y- you it's a function wrapping a function, and then you send a function in to call something else. So I, right. it's again <laughs> it's really hard it's really hard to show this without like code, and I'm trying to yeah, struggling yeah. to come up with an example, but yes. You pattern match on the parameters coming in to a given function. That function will handle the result of the function you're interested in,
2: if that makes sense. Okay. Right. And, okay. and you wrote a blog post about this case and pattern matching. So now you have a case for a call to a query, mm-hmm. and then given a success, do this. Given an yes. error, do this. Exactly right. And that error,
1: is, and it's it's like with Node. In Node, they have this callback structure uh, where, you know, every callback and node typically will take an error in first position and any return data in second. So all the way down whatever callback, uh, tree you're going down, if you follow that structure, then you can send the error all the way back up the callback chain. Um, as long as you follow that structure, you won't get right. an error. And so in this case, it works exactly the same way. If you follow this notation, it doesn't matter at what point you're in in this deep recursion
2: nesting, whatever you're doing, if that error hits, it'll bubble all the way back up. Right. Yeah. So errors are still special, right? Like they, they still, they're not just another condition. They have powers.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's exceptions you can throw, of course, and that'll stop, that'll halt execution. Right. Um, this, is just, this is just bubbling the error back up for someone else to handle, throwing this it over is, the just, fence.
2: But this is also remembering that we're living in Erlang, with which is ultimately super resilient, infrastructure, not Erlang, the operating system, not Erlang, the language mm-hmm. where each one of these executing blocks is probably fairly short lived and, and is, would rather, you know, run, do die. And then something else gets made behind it. Like that's just mm-hmm. sort of the normal pattern from everything I've worked with, with, with Erlang.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the part I'm just getting into now is spawning individual processes to do parallel execution of things. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Derek Bailey about, you know, MQ and how how fun it is to kind of just think in individual little service nodes, right? That expand and contract and it's like little bunnies running around that execute stuff. And, uh, <laughs> you it, killed a yeah. bunny. bunnies. It's a really big teeth. <laughs> uh, you know, anyway. So. That's the ordinary rabbit. <laughs> oh, very
0: good. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. oh, no, no, but, please. Somebody stop. Now. Yeah, right. Let's stop. Huh. But not the either.
1: fact that you can do that from within a language as a as a first class citizen that that I just what? You know, and so people would say, "Well, you can you can do threading and and .NET and it's disastrous. It's horrible." Well, you know, it's not disastrous and horrible.
2: You, you just have to know what you're doing when you get into threading and can be it's painful. dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> that's all. But with, is, it has it, very unforgiving failure modes. That's right.
1: And you have to worry about data and and, and permutations and all that. However, with Elixir, and because it's functional and all structures in there are immutable, uh, it basically just goes hand in hand, right? So you, can, you, can, you don't have to worry about data changing, and you don't have to worry about clashes. And in fact, in Elixir, and I'm just learning this, right, because I'm afraid of, afraid of threads, uh, but inside of Elixir, people actually gravitate towards them
0: quite readily. They love them. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Well, Richard... Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to go off the rails and watch the phoenix rise as you sip from the grail that holds the elixir of life. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Rob. That's about what I deserved there. That's <laughs> 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 yeah. Actually, it's time to give away a copy of Component One Active Reports to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, design, publish, view, print, and export operational reports such as invoices, expense reports, tax and government forms, as well as strategic and analytical reports such as sales performance, budgeting, and revenue analysis. Active Reports gives you the operation and flexibility you need to turn your data into informative, pixel-perfect reports across the enterprise.
2: All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Dwayne McKibben. Congratulations, Dwayne. Golf clap for you, sir.
0: A round of applause for Dwayne. And Dwayne just won the Component One Studio Enterprise. Big pile of awesome from Component One. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to dotnetrocks.com, click on the Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks Fan Club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks Fan Club. But you got to sign up to win. All right, Rob. It's your turn. If you had five grand to spend on technology, what would you buy? Oh man, a Sono system. Does yeah. that oh, count? The music thing.
1: Yes. Yeah, I'd buy another one. I love it that much. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you have one now. I do. Yeah. I, I did not know these things were as amusing as they are, but they're just outstanding.
2: And they're you know they're they're focusing on the modern way. It's funny the the top geek out that hasn't been done yet now is smart homes. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think the Sonos people have got that most other household music systems haven't figured out yet is stop giving us consoles. Exactly right. right. Just, mm-hmm. We've got phones. We've got tablets. Just yeah. stop it.
1: Yeah, right? Yeah. and friends of mine who ask me, why do you like it so much? you know, What's wrong with other Bluetooth speakers? I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're not Bluetooth. Each one of these things is a computer, and they make their own little nodes and expanding networks in your house, and you attach them to each other and they make a little sound network it's just nuts and the sound is the quality is amazing
2: yeah it's it's a quality product and they and their their electronics are so good you forget they're doing what they're doing mm-hmm. wow absolutely it absolutely dis- sort of disappears and i don't have one but i have come to covet that uh, they've done they've done a lot of stuff right i i'm a traditionally wired smart home it's but my approach is vintage i would never do it this way today mm-hmm. wow
0: Okay, I'm with you, man. I'm in.
2: <laughs> we know what
0: to buy each other for Christmas. Toys. All right. Uh,
2: we had a great little tweet storm around the $5,000 draw, and there were two things that popped out to me. One is that most people, when asked, want a new dev machine. Still, and it's the only thing we've done. The three times we've given it away, it's been a, some variation on build me a new dev machine. Wow. And the other the coolest thought I ever saw was a tweet where the guy said, I'd send my two daughters to space camp. Um, Oh, that's great. Very cool. Very cool. So using recursion and elixir to break your object oriented brain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I feel like Rob is going back to uh, school to get his computer science degree publicly.
2: <laughs> but you're I, I, I mean, you're, I love that you're talking about what is effectively a scar that your tendency to think about everything as objects. I totally get that. Oh, it is. It's, um, well, there's
1: two things about that post. First, uh, it's it while it is recursive, it is not true recursion. I, I got called out in the comments, um, right? and, and the, the, the comment was a very simple one, where the person said, it is recursive, but it is not true recursion, because the call graph is acyclic. <laughs> and a I said, cyclic? And I'm like, okay, and I'm hitting Google, like, oh, God, I know what a call graph, wow, what's, da? and so it's funny, I, I asked my brother, because my brother happened to be here, Mr. Professor, uh, U of O, computer science, right? And, the um, actual PhD in computing science. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a prof- he does bioinformatics. Um, anyway, wow. he uh, he said, "Oh, I see what this person is saying." Uh, usually, when you have a, f- a function that is recursive, it calls itself and it performs the same operation. Typically, so you know the the typical one is like a factorial function where right. it computes a factorial, right? But in the example I gave in my blog, each one of those functions did a separate and individually different thing, and I actually made it uh, more complicated when I should have been using piping. So you know, there's a follow-up post to that one. I just wanted to acknowledge that it is
2: recursive, but it is not the way Elixir people would do it. Mm-hmm. Hey, and I love that you're still making the distinction of, I am yet a, an Elixir person. I am only in love with them. Yes, that's right. Well, you know, it's funny. I wanted to, um, I wanted to mention this,
1: because uh, the book I'm reading right now is uh, Dave Thomas' uh, Programming Elixir on Prague, Prague. Absolutely wonderful book. And, um, you know, high praise for the guy who wrote the pickaxe pickaxe book for the rails and Ruby people. Uh, but he, he has a, he has a lead in here that I just love where he says that he came across Ruby in 98 because blah, 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 for various reasons, downloaded it, compiled it and fell in love. And, uh, he said, fast forward 15 years and he's been trying to find something that would bring about that enthusiasm and love again. And he's found it in Elixir. And then I love this follow-up. He goes, so now I'm dangerous. I want other people to see just how great it is. So I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt the same way about these blog posts. Like, I want other people to know this, but I don't know enough yet. So I really have to be careful, you know, because I don't yeah. want to represent something
2: poorly. Right. I am trying to build a larger community that will help me get better. Yes.
1: Yeah, it's neat. And, and Dave Thomas gave a presentation about Elixir uh, where he said it literally has changed everything the way he programs and this Mm. is not a young buck this is this is old school dave thomas right right saying that that elixir has changed him and i that's i find that pretty fascinating
2: i do and compelling yeah no and and you're not the only you're saying pretty much the same thing and most folks we've talked to is like they get chills right it's like oh no now i think differently like every line of code i write in other languages is now different because of how this language made me think true that's, I mean, a, it's a, an astonishing statement. I, I don't know that people would believe it.
1: Uh, and typically they don't. You know, they, they'll say, well, have you tried, the biggest one I get from .NET people is, have you
0: tried F-sharp? <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
1: like, uh, what's, and I always have to troll them right back. You're like, "What? what's F-sharp?
0: <laughs> the thing that blew my mind was when we were talking to Brian Hunter for the second time at NDC in Oslo, and he was talking about how Going functional, and particularly with Erlang and things like this, it, it removes um, potential, like it takes away the possibility that you will have certain problems, mm-hmm. you know? Like certain things that you have to fill holes and plug holes in, in object-oriented programming just aren't even possible to fail that way, starting with um, immutable data, Mm -hmm. And, you know, moving toward to nulls and all of the other kinds of checking and type checking and things that we have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And he he gave this great, there's a Japanese word for it, and I don't remember it, but the word is essentially, uh, he he illustrated it by saying, you know, there's like a a bar in hanging down when you go into a parking lot, a parking garage, right? And -hmm. the bar says, you know, this is the clearance, right? And so if you hit that bar... You know that you cannot go further, right? So it, it's sort of like having these, these bars everywhere, uh, it, it, that you just, it's just not possible yeah. to fail in these ways.
1: Yeah. And it, uh, the one of the interesting things and people hear about this and they go, well, they do that by copying the data, you know? Yeah. So like if you call one function and you say operate on some data, right? What you get back is a copy. And and so people then instantly think about strings and .NET, right? And trying to create a new string, you end up with all these string objects and memory bloat, and it's really bad, right? Well, it typically can be bad. Let's put it that way. So right. that just doesn't happen in Elixir. Elixir is pretty dang smart because if you transform some data, what you get is a pointer to the original data, and it doesn't create that whole that it doesn't create that original set or the original data chunk again. Because that would make no sense. Because it can't be changed anyway, so it just points to it. Um, and the classic example is when you're trying to grow a list. Um, let's say you have a list of three elements, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to add a fourth to it. And so you might have a function that does that, let's say. Function add another element. And what you get back is, of course, a four element list. But what you really have under the covers is a pointer to the original list and then another value tacked on. So it's actually quite efficient. And it's kind of fun when you think about it because... That's the kind of thing immutability buys you. Now, I, again, I have not built anything in this, so I have to be careful how much I say because I am not exactly too experienced at this stuff. But I see it and I say, "Wow, that makes perfect sense."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, th- so these things may be a little foreign at first, but after I can imagine like getting sucked in, you know, and mm-hmm. not having to decorate my code with checks for nulls and things like that and, and, and all these things, do you find yourself going there? Do you find yourself not, not wanting to go back to an object oriented programming model? Um, you know, it's one of those things where, man, how many times have I been sucked
1: into something and, yeah. you know, you come back out the other end a few years later and you're like, wow. And I made a quip earlier about the rails hangover. yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, and I say that in a, in a weird loving way. I, so with Elixir, I know that in a few years, I'll probably get pulled into something else yet. Sure. What I'm doing now is I'm basically just appreciating what I'm learning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I can't, can I change my day job? Can I change the things I'm doing? Well, you know, I've got a series of things I'm trying to build and, and mm-hmm. videos I'm trying to do for Pluralsight. So no, I can't change what I do. But on the weekends, you know, I have a little pet project that I'm building. And so, you know, that's, this is the kind of the other thing that I was going to say too is, you know. I'm a big, big proponent of the Prague prog thing of, you know, and learn a new language every year and just, just do it, just learn it. And even if you're not going to use it, yeah. you learn how to apply new things to what you're doing. So back to answer your question directly. Um, no, you know, I feel like if I'm working in object oriented language like Ruby or, or .Net or C sharp or whatever, I got to go full objects and just go with what I know. Yeah. Cause you know, it's like running upstream. Sure. Um, but i could see many times why i might think you know this would be great to write in something else and to have that facility to cross think it yeah i think that is that is really
0: important cross thinking i love it and i love yeah. how you you know you sort of frame things in terms of well here's here's the analog in the dot net world you know where we're mm-hmm. right. talking about assemblies for example i love the fact that you can sort of draw those analogies together you know that's what that's the true power of being a polyglot isn't it I think so. And it's funny, I had a fun conversation with Ted Neward yesterday,
1: <laughs> which is always, you know, it's it, I, Ted is Ted is a lot of fun to talk to. Anyway, we were talking about polyglot stuff and uh, he was trying to explain the language curve. It just spoken languages that obviously the first one is a big one as you're a baby trying to learn how to speak. It takes mm. years. Mm. The second one you learn is kind of hard, but then the third and the fourth and the fifth, you find that language follows the same structures, you look at the patterns to look for, uh, you know, and the same with programming, you know, like, I have a step down that I look at whenever I learn a new language, you know, what are my types? Where are my loops? You know, what do the list structures look like? And, you know, go on from there. Now, Elixir is a little bit different because it's functional, but there's enough of a foothold that I have that I can see, whoa, Okay. You know, because in I looked at a struct and I'm like, oh, I wonder if you can put behavior on a struct. And you actually can. But then I'm like, whoa, why would I do that? Yeah, <laughs> you know, because right. it's data. Don't do that. And yeah, it's kind of funny. You have to check yourself constantly. But I think that's
0: great. Sure. Keeps you on your toes. Any of you brought back anything from that land and from the land of Elixir to to uh, more object oriented languages? Um,
1: not just. Yet that's a good question. Here's this is the funny thing. I was just trying to. I'm working right now mostly in Postgres, uh, so I'm actually writing JavaScript functions inside Postgres. <laughs> so
2: <laughs> cool. Oh, uh, I know people's brains probably. What are you doing? I'm oh, actually. No, that's, yeah, I'm but you're, having, you're, you're, you you've always been a data guy too, so it's not a surprise to me good. that you, you've still got a love affair with Postgres. There's lots to love. Oh my gosh. Uh, but it's funny that you say this,
1: uh, Carl, because it makes me think about like, yes, I'm actually okay, I'll give you an example of what I what I just retooled the other day. Uh, so I was writing a query to register a new user, right? And so what would you typically return from a query where you register a new user? Um, well, for most people it would be the user, right? The new user record. However, uh, that's just not the way the things work typically in the functional world. You will return some metadata with the data attached to it. Yeah. Uh, right. Specifically in Elixir, you'll have, you'll have an atom at the front of that tuple. So I was like, well, let's do that because that makes way more sense. Because <laughs> then you can tell the programmer it was a success. Here's a message for you so you know what's going on. Uh, possibly here's the things that changed in the database. And by the way, here's some relevant bits of data for you. That makes a better API
2: by far. And so, you know, that's one thing I could say that I rethought.
0: Okay. You know,
2: I want to go further on the whole spoken language thing because uh, I've certainly had friends who know a number of the different romance languages and end up composing them together. Mm-hmm. I also have a, a, fo- a few folks I've known who've that's happened for them with Oriental languages. You know, they, oh, wow. they learn they learn Chinese and Japanese and Korean and see the synthesis between them. Wow! But they're so those that cluster language is so different mm-hmm. from you sort of European derived languages that there's almost no overlap between them. Yep. And I'm I'm wondering when we look at Dynamic languages like Ruby and static languages like C-sharp and functional languages like Elixir that we don't see the same kinds of schisms. There's just core differences in thinking. You know, you bring up such a good analogy with with spoken
1: languages, especially with Chinese, which is a tonal language. Mm-hmm. You know, the, their concept of stringing words together is completely different. Completely. It's not even, I don't know, it's so weird. Like, uh, my wife uh, is an acupuncturist, and so she had to learn a little Chinese here and there. But there's a, there's a funny saying it's, I'm going to butcher this, but it's something like mama, mama, or something like that, where it's just the same sound, ma, over and over, but with different tones. And it means different things based on what you say. Right. (laughs) And one of them is, I think, um, a
2: treatment. And the other one is mother beats the horse. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah, Yeah. when you get them wrong, they're always funny. (laughs) Uh, but the, and the way I've heard it described by the linguist types is that the Romance languages are consonantally dra- driven. So you change the meaning of word with consonantal sounds like S-T and T-H and things like that, and where the Oriental languages are vowelly driven, where variations and vowel noises change the meanings.
1: Well, yeah. and the interesting thing is, when you start learning about these things, and I forgot where I read this, but they were talking about tonal languages versus more Western-style, uh mm-hmm. like Romantic, right? But then they said, you know... You don't really know it as a Westerner, but we have tonal, we have tonal aspects to our language as well. Yeah. You know, I could, I could hum a bar, um, like, uh uh and you know, like, I'm calling to somebody, right? Right. Or, and, and it's weird because those Uh patterns repeat in all different languages. Like, yeah, like, huh? it's yep. and and so it's so all of a sudden like you're bringing back what you've learned somewhere else and you you get to see your language completely differently like wow right. we have that too so,
2: something that's a very minor player in your language is a very big player in this other language and it makes you value that minor piece yeah.
1: like the tonal variation of what right what mm-hmm. or what
0: or how about you know, the word dude How many many implied (laughs) meanings are there? (laughs) Dude! You know, startle it, being startled or shame.
1: Dude. Yeah. And it's funny because one (laughs) word has such drastically different meanings. It's
2: crazy. Yes. Yeah. Or So, I mean, yeah, I'm enjoying this idea that part of the polyglot side effect is this seeing your other languages in a different way, even Hmm. when they're radically different. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's funny because Ted and I were talking about this
1: too, where – a lot of people see the, you know, like why do I always have to learn new and shiny? I, I if I hear new and shiny again, I, I think I'm gonna just explode. <laughs> and because the funny thing is, is like my, my usual recommendation to people who say, okay, well, what language would you recommend I learn? Like Go, Rust, what Ruby? Making fun of me, I'm like, how about SQL? <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. how about that? Keep, learn yourself some SQL and watch the way it changes your life. Uh, it's you will learn it in a. On a plane flight, right? And you'll rethink everything. You it's just a well. functional language. It's an amazing language. And it's well, and it's funny too, because with Postgres, well, and, and SQL Server as well. I was pointing this out to a friend where they said it's this procedural structured garbagey thing. I'm like, it is not. You look at, and I showed him a CTE or a common table expression, yep. chaining together queries to do operations building one on the other. I'm like, that's a pipeline. Yeah, you know, let you find in an Elixir. Or a functional language or a stream or anything, you know? And uh, they looked at me like, not really. I'm like, no, really? You're sending one (laughs) operation into the result of the, or the result of one into the next? Oh, my God. It was the funniest conversation.
2: (laughs) Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's incompetent. Exactly. And And, and the problem with SQL is it's got enough age on it, and it's never gone away. I mean, Erlang's not a young language either, but it's been in the background for so long, we can look at it as new and fresh. but SQL has never ever gone away it's never stopped being important
1: Yep. yeah what's funny I'm going to troll myself this is the first time I've done this I'm I'm going to Dev Day Um, tomorrow as a matter of fact I'll be in Poland Um, and and I learned to say this right hopefully I say it in Krakow uh, Krakow and so I'm going to give a talk on RethinkDB which is an amazing NoSQL engine right and uh, I had to learn the query language, which they tout is functional and influenced by Haskell, which does exactly this. It chains these, these operations together to pull data out, shape it, transform it to all these things. Neat. Uh, but I'm going to troll myself because the next talk I'm giving is in, um, on Postgres and using Postgres purely as a document database, where you do the same thing, but with more powerful syntax. And I actually show things you can't do in RethinkDB with SQL. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And so that's going to be where I end the talk. I'm like, so try and do that in RethinkDB. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, right. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I guess we got a little bit off topic. Well, I guess we're still talking about languages. and sure, We think- are.
2: Absolutely. And, it, and I think it's, it's just been such a powerful talking point as, as the Microsoft world has broadened with open source and, and other tooling and so forth. And suddenly those other languages don't seem that far away. Mm -hmm. Polyglot doesn't seem like an exception anymore. It's just sort of a natural part of
0: the evolution of you as a developer. That's right. It's true. Yep, very much. Now, as you went through and did the exercises and stuff, you must have had some sort of ultimate project in the back of your mind. Like, oh, if I could... Oh, oh I do. This is powerful enough to do X or Y. No, I do. Is it diabolical? Can you talk about it?
1: uh, uh, No, it's not diabolical. I could probably... uh, well let 's just say this i 've had mm-hmm. this idea cooking in the back of my brain forever, and it 's an idea looking for a platform gotcha and yeah, and so i've thought about various platforms to do it on because I need it needs to be powerful and it needs to be uh, distributed and it needs to you know and all these things I need to be able to do parallel execution quickly mm-hmm. and that that's when I saw what Phoenix could do, not only Phoenix is the elixir's web framework, right, yeah, not only building a slick web app, but also an API and it's highly, highly, um, uh, efficient and, and developers just get going. And, and I just love that about rails. Right. But you're building on top of this rocket ship, like this, this could work. And then to, to boot, I couldn't believe it. Cause in my back of my mind, I'm like, Oh, it's probably going to use Mongo. You ah. <laughs> know, they use Postgres like by default. I was mm. like, I love you. I love you. <laughs> Very cool. So yeah, I'm actually building out. I'm building out my idea right now. So maybe it'll see
0: the, si- the the sight of day. Who knows? Well, great. And uh, I hope to. I hope to hear about it on .Net yeah. Rocks when you're done. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. When you're ready. All right, Rob. We'll catch up with you later. But until then, keep being awesome. And thanks for sharing everything with us.
1: Yeah, it's fun to talk to you guys. Oh, and just real fast, I'm about to head to the store and buy myself a bottle of scotch, and I need a recommendation. What kind of –
0: Yeah, what, what kind do, you like? do you like? Do you like smoky scotch or do you like caramelly scotch or – Yes and yes. How about one of each? <laughs> uh, we love that. And you're in Seattle now, right?
2: Yeah. Go down to the BevMo and get yourself an Angel's Envy. Angel's Envy, Angel's right. Envy bourbon. It's yep, great. It's actually – it's not even technically a bourbon because it's aged in port barrels, so it's sort of got call
0: out it, to the space side. It is Kentucky straight bourbon, but it is finished in port barrels. Yeah, yeah. which technically violates the rules of bourbon. Yeah, you're right. Technically. Technically. So did you say pork or port? Port. Port, <laughs> or
1: yeah. That would be weird.
0: Bacon, bourbon. But <laughs> yes. Richard and I really love this scotch, mostly because it's wonderful and strong and pokes your eye out, but it, it's just tasty, which is abalur abanath. All right. Thank you very much. Ar- Arbalur. I don't know. I'll,
2: I'll spell it for you. Abalour. Oh. And yeah, no, that's that I pull that one out for people who like scotch because it's one of the, it's one of the few cast strength scotches you can buy routinely. So
0: the okay. the the make is Aber A B E R L O U R, and Abanath, which is A apostrophe B U N A D H. Okay. Sounds good. So cask
1: strength is 49 is that clear? it's whatever, whatever came out of the barrel so the, the it'll barrel. actually
2: barrel, vary oh, from cool. batch to batch it'll be okay. somewhere between 57 and 62 so this is a sippin scotch yes, well it's definitely. like you just remember you're effectively having a double all of the time all right. All
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you guys I really appreciate it thanks Rob we'll see you next time on Don and Rocks